Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on 855am on the dial or online at 3cr.org.au. This is Anya. And across from me is George. Good morning. We just made it. We uh, <laughs> literally just made it. Uh, Zoya's doing the coffee run. That's Zoya. But they'll be back in very, very soon. And we have a very exciting program today for you. Yes, we do. So today is Human Rights Day. Mm-hmm. Pretty significant topic to be talking about, but in classic 3CR style, I guess we'll be taking a bit of a critical approach to the idea of human rights, to the human rights regime, Mm. the theory, the practice, but also how it's used by grassroots organisations as well and hearing from people from different communities about the effectiveness effectiveness of human rights. Mm. And whether human rights is an equal term and what kind of inequalities the day itself represents and the model itself represents. Definitely. So we've got really exciting guests uh, talking to us today as well. We've got um, Sam Elkin, who is the first um, LGBTIQ service lawyer in Victoria, maybe even Australia, not 100% sure, but Sam will clarify that, (laughs) Um, talking about queer rights and how that fits into the human rights model. We've got Dr. Nero Kandasamy. Yes, who is definitely a regular now on Tuesday breakfast, (laughs) Uh, our main kind of... I guess, a person to speak to about Sri Lankan politics and the resettlement of refugees, Tamil refugees in Mm -hmm. particular in Australia. Um, Her work, her academic work is super broad, but she she looks at oral histories Mm. of Tamil uh, women, of people with disabilities who have fled persecution and war. And I'm really excited to hear more about her knowledge and her thoughts on human rights and in, in relation to the experiences of Tamil people in Sri Lanka. That sounds really good. And at about 8.10, we are going to be talking to Robin Oxley, who's the assistant lecturer at the Monash Criminology Department and a proud Tharawal woman. She's been on Tuesday Breakfast many times, is a true Tuesday Breakfast favourite, um, about um, you know First Nations people in Australia and what the term human rights really mean in that yeah. context, um, and also about the criminal justice system and if the term human rights is uh, compatible with uh, a carceral state. So very interesting Big content. Show, yeah. But before we jump into anything, Georgie, I believe you have a track for us. Yes, I do. I want. I spent most of yesterday picking songs instead of preparing <laughs> for the show. Uh, I wanted. It, yeah, I wanted to kind of pick songs that have a strong political message, and I thought we would start with this track 
by an artist whose name is Mercedes Sosa. The track is called Solo Lo Piero Adios. Um, she was a folk singer from Argentina, and her songs were really political as well. Mm. And I think that this, this track has a lot to do with the issue of unfairness and not detaching ourselves from that. Mm. So let's give it a listen. Gracias.
3CR's having a festive season craft auction fundraiser. Join us on Thursday the 12th of December for Radio Craft at 15 Smith Street, Fitzroy, right next door to the station. Doors open at 5.30pm to have a look at the works, enjoy a drink at our donation bar, music and snacks. Live auction starts at 7pm. We're still seeking donations of crafts in any of its wonderful forms, so if you'd like to make a donation, you can drop it off at 3CR any weekday between 9am and 5pm. Or email radiocraft3cr at gmail.com for more information. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Today is Human Rights Day, so we've got some a lot of content to cover, but we're going to start off with some news headlines. So firstly, and just to clarify that we, we are missing Chris, our regular mm. <laughs> news headline reporter, so in their place you've got me, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Uh, so... India's lower house passed a bill yesterday to grant citizenship to non-Muslim minorities. It still requires approval from the upper house to become law. It's called the Citizenship Amendment Bill. And it aims to amend the 1955 law which grants citizenship to Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Christians, Sikhs and Parsis from neighbouring countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh and Afghanistan, but excludes Muslims. The bill needs to be ratified in both law and upper house to become law. And giving Indian citizenship to Hindus, Jains, Buddhists and Sikhs escaping persecution was part of the manifesto of the BJP ahead of a general election in May 2019 that the National Nationalist Party swept, as stated by Al Jazeera. So it would be interesting to see what comes out of that. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, that's a bit of a... An in, well, not interesting move. It's pretty expected, I think, from the BJP. But yeah. It's, it's a... It's a I think quite a um, oh device, not divisive, but it really is sending a message to the states bordering India, isn't it? Really about what they mm. where, what their position is, and when we consider the kind of heightening tensions in Kashmir and, mm. and that kind of thing, it's it's a very classic. It's like a classic Modi move, but mm. yeah, yeah. And over to China. So China has defended its network of re-education camps in um, Yingzhang province. SBS reports that it will continue train uh, to train residents, so that's the, the, the way that they, that's quote-unquote, despite leaked government documents which detailed the surveillance and control of Uyghur people. It's estimated that around 1 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities are being held in Chinese re-education or indoctrination camps, but the Chinese government calls um, vocational education centres, which are run like prisons and have the ultimate aim of eradicating Uyghur culture and religion. The Chinese government has also ramped up its propaganda to, to, to justify the camps following the leaked documents and a bill calling for sanctions against Chinese officials. And so the other aims are, that they claim are that they're teaching Mandarin job skills, preventing mm-hmm. extremism, um, and <coughs> China, uh Chinese state media have ramped up a defense of government policies, so they've been posting on Twitter graphic videos with English subtitles of deadly attacks in the region to kind of justify. Mm. So that that seems to be continuing. It's getting to the point where international community knows that something is happening but are satisfied about the response from the government, like every other genocidal event that's happened in history. Yeah. 
It's very, very ahead in the sand, right? Mm. Yeah, and you can get away with it by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's what happened with Rwanda mm. in '94. I mean, that's probably the most famous example yeah. of recent years of yeah. governments just refusing to acknowledge that something was happening, mm. looking yeah. up, and yeah. all the warning flags are there. And I guess this relates to today's topic, thinking about some of the issues of human rights frameworks, which often basically end up being like about justice. Mm. So maybe 20 years down the track, there'll be some sort of human rights body that tackles this. But right now, what are human rights frameworks doing? What is the human rights regime doing to try and prevent exactly. what's going yeah. on? Okay, so on to the next one. So Labor MP Peter Khalil has called for a coordinated global solution to the global refugee crisis. Mr Khalil said, as world events including climate change, natural disasters, war and conflict worsen the refugee crisis, it's more important than ever to change perceptions of refugees. And so cites UNHCR statistics showing that just 92,000 of the world's 25.9 million refugees were resettled last year. In 2018, Australia accepted 12,700 refugees, the third highest amount behind Canada, which resettled 28,000, and the United States, which took 22,000. I'm surprised by that stat. Mm. Anyway, um, during the election campaign, Prime, Prime Minister Scott Morrison described Australia's humanitarian program as one of the most generous in the world. Interesting. Mm-hmm. As he announced plans to freeze the intake at its current level of up to 18,700 and increase the number of women to 60% of the offshore component. And we also had the rally on Saturday mm. uh, to try and end temporary protection visas. So there's a bit of movement around that at the moment. Yeah. I suppose just because it's number three in the world doesn't really mean anything. If yeah. Number one and two are America and what Canada. I'm just really shocked by that. I, I put that in there, but I didn't think I read it properly <laughs> until yeah. I actually read it aloud. Yeah, and what is that? It's also based on the size of your of the country, exactly. yeah. how like the, the resources, the resources. Yeah, with the amount of money that we have, can we resettle more refugees? Yes, as compared to say Italy at the mm. moment. Yeah, or Lebanon. Yeah, well, I'm the Brit in the corner sitting here going, "What is my country doing?" Mm. I mean. Physically, it's a very small country, but in terms of infrastructure and economy, mm. it, it can, yeah. you know, it, it functions on immigration. Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, maybe, oh, these stats, sorry, I just realised, it, it's resettlement, so it's not as, how many people are moving through different states and are there as, no. as refugees, and yeah, so that changes things a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 it's yes. not about accepting refugee claims, but who they're resettling from where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's an important distinction. Yes. Yeah. Look at us doing live journalism. <laughs> Getting realizations as we talk through them. And uh, more live journalism because this is uh, this um, just popped up uh, in the middle of the night that Rohingya campaigners launch Myanmar boycott. So, this I'm reading from Al Jazeera. So, the Free Rohingya Coalition begins the boycott Myanmar campaign in the face of genocide hearings at the ICJ. So human rights campaigners supporting Myanmar's Rohingya, mainly Muslim minority, have called for this global boycott of the country a day before the hearings begin at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. So the Free Rohingya Coalition said in a statement on Monday it was starting the campaign with 30 organisations in 10 countries and it's called on corporations, foreign investors, professional and cultural organisations to sever their institutional ties with Myanmar. So another watch this space, I mm. guess. How effective will human rights 
bodies be in addressing this issue that's been ongoing for quite some time? Mm. And I guess we can we can track that and identify if anyone wants to engage in that boycott on a personal mm. level, the sorts of activities they can they can take part in. I also wanted to add, and this isn't necessarily a human rights focused news headline, but it is one that I think is important just to have a quick touch base on, and that's the UK election because it's coming oh, yeah. on. on Thursday. I'm sure you can make it into Thursday? a human rights. Tomorrow, you can make it into a human rights angle. Anything. It's, it's definitely got a human rights angle. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I just had a look at the most recent polls mm. and you know, had a brief chat about this yesterday with Monday Breakfast. I called in. It was very exciting. I was a guest. <laughs> it was such a strange experience. <laughs> you kept so that weird. quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Look at me. <laughs> cheating on you all. Uh, <laughs> wow. I was shocked. But. The UK election is coming up this Thursday and it is looking to be a very tight race. The Conservatives are still ahead of Labour. Mm. Labour are closing in but not far enough. But the really interesting thing is that I'm having a look at a set of polls that have shown the change from 2017 in support for the various major parties. And it is literally a race to the bottom. The only reason the Conservatives are ahead of Labour is because the, in, the support for Conservatives has only dropped by about 2%, but support for Labour has dropped by around 8 or 9%. So it, it, it really is Labour's election. Labour, Labour, Labour is like, it was Labour's election to lose, and they have managed to succeed with that. Maybe not because of Labour, it could be a lot of the different rhetoric around around Labour, around Brexit, around various things. Jeremy Corbyn, as I was saying this yesterday, Jeremy Corbyn has done himself no favours in his response to the accusations of anti-Semitism in his party mm. and the way that he has dealt with that has been abhorrent and abhorrent at worst and potentially, I guess, just sort of idiotic at best. Mm. His refusal to apologise properly is really not great, but it really, it genuinely is a race to the bottom. And the Lib Dems were doing really quite well in July, around equal with the Conservatives with Labour ahead, mm. and now the Lib Dems are sitting at about 13% approval and Conservatives sitting at about 43% with Labour at 33%. So it is, it, who knows where we're going to go with this election. Um, I was saying yesterday there is, it, it is a couple of opinion points, like percentage points of opinion between a Conservative landslide and a hung mm. Parliament. That's why We have no idea what is going to happen. But do you think, uh, I mean, this is maybe a hard question, but do you, do you, is it possible that there's anything that's been learnt from Brexit in terms of making sure people have more information to make decisions, like, you know, knowing that it was that Absolutely. age populations that, or various factors that played into... Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't even know how you... It's, I think with Brexit, it was... There was a lot of complacency, I think, on the part of the Yes campaign. I think the... Or the, the you know, the Remain campaign. I think the Leave campaign were very effective with scaremongering. And I, I, I think potentially one of the biggest things we need to take from it is right now in the environment in which we live, scaremongering seems to be mm -hmm. a really, really effective mm. uh, tool. I guess I was listening to a podcast recently, actually, about people making decisions when they're in a hot, what's called a hot state. Mm. So a hot state is when you're not thinking 
properly. So you might be scared or you might be hungry or you might be tired. Mm. Or any, literally any hot, like in Sydney. Or, or literally hot, yeah. which is why it's a hot state. <laughs> and your decision-making your decision making process is going to be far less, it's going to be far more instinctual yeah. and it's going to be far less considered. And so if you are whipped into a frenzy of fear, like the lead campaign did talking about taking money away from the NHS or talking about unfettered mm. immigration mm. and using mm. drawing on a combination of factors mm. both um, justified not justified economic factors because the NHS saying that money's going to be taken away from the NHS was an outright lie mm. but but using people's fear of losing the NHS combined with bigotry was a great way to get the populace into this hot state mm. that they go oh I don't want to be involved in this oh let's leave rather than going well Remaining in the EU is going to ensure that people, you know, there's going to be better regulation of um, potentially disastrous environmental things. There's going to be better regulation of um, treatment of refugees. Mm. There's, you know, heaps and heaps of things. You know, we talk, we talk about human rights. The EU Charter on Human Rights, for better or for worse, at least it's it's something that is there that people have recourse to turn to when they feel that their country isn't supporting them. Yeah, I guess it's harder to think of wider social issues and implications when there's so much scarcity in your everyday life. Mm. You, you know, if your welfare payments are being cut all the time and someone's telling you that it will be worse because yeah. of a particular thing, yeah. you know, you don't have the time and space to sit down and think, is it actually worse? Exactly. It's just, you know, operating in a mode of fear. Exactly. Which is totally understandable. Which is what the conservatives that remove those welfare payments exactly. and then go, the Europeans are taking yeah. it from us. It's, it was really quite disgusting. And it's sort of like latching onto some sort of hope that maybe this will make things better. And, yeah. you know, that's understandable as well. Mm. Really, the politicians. <laughs> that's, that's How do you sleep at night? It's <laughs> the question from George. <laughs> <laughs> From George Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think that's a good time to go to a song <laughs> on that note. Thank you, Anya. Thank you, Zoya, <laughs> for your contributions. Um, so I wanted to play an Nina Simone song, of course, and mm. I had trouble picking, but I think I landed on Ain't Got No, I Got Life. Mm. I ain't got no
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things on And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to Tuesday Brecky on 3CR. So I guess this will sort of run like our alt news segment, which we haven't really done for yeah. quite a while. Do we have the song? Yes, yeah, speaking of which. Some folks know about it, some don't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty Now, one, two, nitty-gritty nine That's for you, Louise Maxwell, <laughs> our number one fan yeah. So what was what was what was that? We used you to do this all the time. time. No, Whoa. this is before this my is time. This is pre-Zoya, I think. I think we we're supposed to keep doing it, but <laughs> I didn't really know what happened. So Every time we did alt news, we would just play the song, and Georgie's mum, Louise Maxwell, was a <laughs> huge fan of this segment. I love that. Mm. So that has to carry on. I think we have to bring, bring it back. back. That yeah. that has that has turned my sort of I'm falling asleep in my chair <laughs> because it's too early in the morning for me today to ah oh, yes. Yeah. I was like wiggling away in my chair like that like that video of the turtle under the shower like wiggling away in the water. <laughs> If anyone's seen that, you know that. If you need like an image of Zoya right now, that's yeah. a, that, that, a turtle. That was me. That was me. Um, yeah. I am a turtle in a shower. That's how happy I am. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so basically, just wanted to talk a bit about. So I I teach human rights in a few different subjects. So in international politics and uh, in a gender politics subject. Uh, as a tutor at university and so I just wanted to share some of my observations and thoughts around it and kind of the highlights the things that that I really try and focus on in my classes and things that I've observed from students and how they interact with the topic as well so I wanted to start by acknowledging I guess the origins of human rights in liberal ideas you know thinking about these old fogies like Kant, Locke, Rousseau, you know even economic liberals and people that talked about like Kant's idea of that the, the, all humans are of e- equal moral worth mm. and that this is really where human rights has come from. You know, it's, it goes back hundreds of, hundreds of years to these old white rich men, pretty much, and kind of acknowledging that and 
that sort of relates to some of the issues, the, 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 the practical structural issues with the human rights regime today. I'm thinking about its foundation and the, the assumption of a universal human experience. When when you actually break that uh, break that down, it really represents a more privileged white male, cis, straight, able-bodied. You know, or you know, it it, it doesn't. Sorry, it, yeah, it does represent that. It doesn't take into consideration other experiences. Mm. Um, and I wanted to also talk about you know, so, so jumping right ahead to the International Bill of Human Rights. So in the late 40s, you know, then you start to have issues around you know, like in gender politics we talk about gendered language in in um these conventions and problematize that so then you start to have okay women you know let's talk about women's experiences and include that and understand that uh but then i guess that kind of links to the issue of liberal white feminists that then get on board so then it starts off being a white male topic and a white ma- you know, white male dominated kind of um Field and then it becomes something that's also dominated by white women and then it just keeps mm-hmm. plodding along like that. Um, and I wanted to use one example, which was the Beijing Women's Conference. It's one of the biggest... It, it, there's been a documentary made about it. It was really significant in 1995. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch the documentary to see what we focus on in history and how we kind of think about specific events and who's telling the story of that event. But at this conference... Uh, and I'm sure many of you listening and, and both of you will know this quote from Hillary Clinton. And she came to the conference and it was almost like in a way that it's represented in the doco that she like descended from heaven and gave this quote. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly she'd said it and she'd finally done this thing for women that had never been done before. And it was really huge. And she said, she says, let it be known that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights. Oh, and I've the heard crowd cheers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the crowd cheers, and then and then it's like, wow, incredible, and this is going to change everything. And, and oh my god, women are human! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> um, but the documentary doesn't give any kind of space to. There were so many different groups and communities at that conference mm-hmm. that had probably no, no definitely uh, worked pretty hard to get there, either financially or traveling or what, what you know, whatever. Mm. But we don't get to hear their stories. We don't get to hear the, the grassroots, uh, from the grassroots activists and what the work they were doing at that time. Everything is about Hillary Clinton. It's really centering whiteness. It's very Anglo-centric. It's the, the US, which is always at the forefront of anything that's going on with the UN. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Clinton can just come, not really attend many of the events at the conference and just say this one sentence and then mm-hmm. it becomes this huge moment in history. Um, what I find interesting mm. about that, sorry, George, to jump okay. in, um, my, my brain is pinging around a different way, in a multiplicity of different ways. But for that specifically, 1995, that we spoke about Rwanda just before mm. and the Rwandan genocide. 95 is just one year after the genocide. And during the time of the genocide, Bill Clinton refused to acknowledge or call it a genocide. Yeah. So really interesting. Not that, obviously, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are two different people, mm-hmm. but in a way they did function as a unit yes. and as a leadership unit. She was Definitely. the de facto you know, vice president during the time of his, of, of, of his uh, him being in office. She very clearly was very deeply involved in, in what he did. And that, that there is a, a thread there, right? between who, who is human and who isn't human. Mm. She wasn't standing up at any point and saying black lives, black yes. rights are human rights. Yeah. Mm. You know, African rights are human rights. There was no intersectional mm. understanding there mm. at all. Even at that conference, I think getting 
uh, being able to engage with issues around sexuality was really difficult, and as you can imagine, like feminist gendered spaces. Mm. But mm. yeah, absolutely, highlighting that period, also highlighting that I think that really speaks to the issue of paying lip service yeah. to you know, quote-unquote, human mm, rights, yeah. what, what is actually going on at the same time. Exactly. Um, and I think that kind of relates to... So my next point, wanting to talk about... Um, this is a point that I really labour in class. I think this is really interesting and important, thinking about historical shifts around human rights and what changed following on from the Cold War. So... And I'm sure, again, listeners will be familiar with the three generations of rights, the first gen, the civil and political, so the relationship between the individual and the, individual and the state, like right to vote and freedom of religion and all that kind of stuff. The second gen being social, economic and cultural rights, so these are the needs-based rights, so housing, food, healthcare, education. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the fundamental things that humans need to survive. And then the third gen being the group rights, so environmental rights, um, rights and related to self-determination and sovereignty for First mm-hmm. Nations peoples. And it's, argu- uh, it's debated as to whether there's now going to be a fourth generation uh, concerning environmental, like, like climate justice, or whether that's also part of the third gen. But when we're sort of still nutting that out at the moment. But the, the point I want to raise about this is that after the Cold War ended, there was a, a prioritisation of some rights over others. And very much so those second generation rights, those social, economic and cultural rights, basically drop off the table completely. Because if you're a wealthy state or if you're a wealthy person in a state, you don't really care about access to food, housing, health, Mm -hmm. education. You already have those things. You're not going to advocate for that. And so I think when we're looking at what's going on today, you know, we have so many people in the world that don't have access to clean drinking water. The issue of homelessness, which is a solvable problem, It's a solvable problem, and it has been solved in some, some cities, but it, it requires the will to do so. When we think about access to education, all of these different things that are just about basic needs uh, that are not being met, I think we can look back at what happened, that this was a real turning point. This was the, the rise of uh, liberal, the liberal democratic capitalist state and neoliberal policies, and that changed a huge amount, and, and understanding how human rights kind of slotted into this Again, li- with lip service, and there's so many different examples of, um, you know, they, they d- it's t- spoken about as like quick and dirty, a quick and dirty approach to human rights. So where, say, for example, the UN will go, oh, we need to help uh, women in Afghanistan. And then they'll go in and say, we need to help them with uh, working out how to vote. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go and implement this program when they might not, they might still be fighting for the needs-based rights What's your priority? And Anya, you were talking about this before. If you are still, if you don't have a lot of spare time, if you're still working, you know, you're still fighting for education, for work, for all of these things, how are you going to engage engage with politics in the Mm. UK? That's not going to be your priority. I guess it's the, you know, the saviour complex, right? Like we can tell them what they need and we will do what we want and they have to be grateful to us. Exactly. And we don't even know what is required Mm. and we're not even going to listen. Yeah, it's it's 100% um, a colonial savior narrative and it's also um and not to criticize anyone who's working on the front lines but uh, you know it's a it's a thing that happens in the social justice sphere slash industry as well all these really well-meaning people who never act alongside their clients or the people Mm -hmm. they're meant to assist but on behalf of them yeah, and tell them what they need. Yeah, because um, as you were talking about Hillary Clinton, that's the other thing that I was thinking about. Because a lot of her biographies is about her, you know, extensive work as a human rights defender, as a uh, lawyer, working with marginalized communities, and 
there are many Hillary Clintons in that space today yeah. that I know. But, you know, is it client-centric, focused? Is it, you know, actually focused on what people need is a different mm. question. Yeah, and I guess that feeds into that, that third generation sort of, mm. in a way, that self-determination yeah. kind of element. My question is, where do we think the Millennium Development Goals fit into all of this and what are our thoughts about What are it? those? So the Millennium Development Goals were a set of goals developed by the UN, mm-hmm. I believe, and it is, they, they've just changed and they're no longer the Millennium Development Goals, there's the Sustainability Development Goals, something okay. like that, the, the, sustainable, yeah, the, the sustainable Development Goals. So the Millennium Development Goals were... Um, created in 2001, 2000 at the Millennium Summit by the United Nations, mm-hmm. and there are eight goals. And they are eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, achieve universal primary education, promote gender equality and empower women, reduce child mortality, improve maternal health, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases, ensure environmental sustainability, and global partnership for development. And so they functioned until... 2015 Mm. not a huge amount was achieved as a result of them they were meant to be a coordinating focus by UN nations Mm. to to address these issues they were they were succeeded by the sustainable sustainable development goals Mm. I believe Mm. and they are um, sorry I'm I'm, I'm doing this on the fly but um, they are I've got them up here uh, two yes if you want to read them out George no poverty zero hunger good health and well-being is it the same as it gender equality clean water and sanitation quality education affordable and clean energy decent work and economic growth it goes on it's very much I mean a lot of these are related to needs based Right, so mm. maybe there, there is a yeah. return to prioritising. Mm. But again, is this just lip service? And what yeah, when this? we considered like, how much was actually done in, in service of these development goals. I love that number 13 is climate action. <laughs> it's like they're very, they're very, huge, very vague goals. Yeah, yeah. they are really broad, like empower women. What, what does that yeah, actually mean? Because empower women could mean, yes, let's go to Afghanistan and help women get the vote. But really maybe empower women is ultimately let's have sanitation. Let's have you know, people being able to, you know, people who bleed being able to go to school every day Mm. because there is sanitation at the school or they have access to some form of sanitary product. That, that kind of thing, like what, what, what does it mean? Or does it actually mean going and asking women in the country, what is it that you need? Absolutely. And I just, I think this relates to, um, the, there's been a lot of controversy like over the last couple of years, but there's also been some recent articles about UN peacekeeping missions and the, the, the harm that UN peacekeepers mm. have caused, uh, whether that be through violence, um, through not, not actually supporting the, the needs of civilians and upholding their rights. And Haiti and the Congo are two recent examples. And in Haiti, they've just ended their peacekeeping mission. It was 15 years long. And it cost, it costed $7 billion. Mm. And, um, there was you know, significant issues of sexual violence and other things mm. going on um, perpetrated by the peacekeepers. So, again, this, this kind of approach of top-down, we're going to mm. go in, we're going to try and solve the problem, mm. when the reality is you've made the problem worse, you haven't supported the people, you've actually perpetrated violence against civilians. What could that money have gone towards Absolutely. in a different way? And in a lot, you know, a lot of circumstances, these Western imperial, imperialist countries created the problem yeah exactly and then try to put a quick band-aid over it exactly i think it's interesting when you speak about that and in haiti especially is a really clear example of that when you think about the violence enacted against 
people there the sexual violence enacted mm. um, you know against you know women against the, the, the it's horrible the things you know I don't want to go into depth about it especially but you know with children and that kind of thing there it's two sides of the same coin the the dehumanization of people through um kind of thinking that they need to be eradicated mm. and the human rights violations and the dehumanization of people by going they need our help and they need our support and that top-down activity it's both a form of dehumanization and at its most granular level mm. results in the same behaviors mm, and the yeah. same destruction of, of of the rights of and the safety of people. and it's also in their self-interest is to show to the international community that they care and that they're doing yes what they can to help other people because those norms matter they exactly it, it matters to have that appearance yeah in today's world whereas it didn't before yeah. these bodies existed they have mm. to put certain amount of money into international aid and you know as long as the money is there they don't really care how it's used yeah and listening and working with the people is going to take a lot more time and effort maybe less money actually yes i think that would be a fair yeah. assumption. Yeah, it's, more, it's more efficient mm. yeah and i guess that like, because I guess we've raised a lot of criticisms. <laughs> and there's a few other things I want to mention. We might have time later on the show. Mm. But I guess thinking about, okay, th these are the problems with the regime broadly, but human rights as a language has become legitimised and it is being used by grassroots activists mm. globally. Yeah. So there is something to be said about being able to say human rights violation and people understand absolutely yeah. and it, it, that's a conversation in and of itself and how it's actually being used by grassroots activists and organizations potentially effectively and if the money and the resources were going directly to those groups mm. so that they could support their own communities absolutely you know that that's a discussion i guess that's really interesting i guess that's what we're going to be talking to our guests yes. Definitely. About today, yeah. Yes. Thanks, Georgie. No worries. I wanted to talk more. We might have time later in the show, but because the theme of uh, Human Rights Day is actually uh, youth standing up for human rights, mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to talk about the Youth Climate Summit a little bit in a few points around Amazing. that, but maybe I'll have time later on. Uh, but our theme is obviously who's human rights, and that additional question that I wanted to add to that is what human rights, mm. um, and linking back to those generations of rights. But maybe it's time for another track. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, from a protest musician from Turkey whose name is Selda Began. And this song is called Yaz Gazeteki Yaz. <laughs> Do do do. 
selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.48 in the morning. On the show today, we have me, Zoya, we have George, and we have Anya, and we are doing a Human Rights Day special. We have our first guest of the show on today, Sam Elkin, who is a relative... What is your face? Did I just say the wrong Sam? My brain is not working. I just, Anya just gave me a face. I'm really bad in it. It's just my face. Anya gives me a face all the time. Anyway, we have Sam on the line. Sam is a relative regular on Tuesday breakfast, and we will let them speak about themselves while Anya continues to give me looks. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I work um, for St Kilda Legal Service and um, I work as a LGBTIQ lawyer um, in a health justice partnership, so that's what I get up to. Fantastic, thanks for that. Um, and how are you doing this morning? I'm good, yeah, um, I've just woken up, I'm ready for the day, so it's good to have a very serious chat first thing in the morning. Yeah, it's a great way to start, right? So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start you off with a very easy question, Sam. Uh, to what extent, so with this, this discussion we're going to be talking largely about the trans rights movement because it really is um, a, a really um, important element of the queer rights movement at the moment and personally as, as, a, as a trans non-binary person it's an area of particular focus for me. So my first question is um, what, to what extent do you think the human rights movement can or does support the advancement of queer rights and in particular trans rights? 
Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. I think that there's a lot in that. Um, I think human rights discourse is always a little bit complicated and a bit suspect. It's always bound up in, you know, notions of um, progress and whiteness, and I think that that's something that we need to interrogate. Um, in terms of the human rights organisations that exist in Australia today, I certainly think that they're trying to do the right thing by trans and gender diverse people. Um, and I think the practical steps to increase, you know, our um, avenues towards access to healthcare without um, medical pathologisation is really useful. Um, but I think that when we're talking about human rights and human rights organisations, I think the, the big problem that we have is that it's often not tied up in economic equality. So you can have formal equality on paper. You can pass new laws that on paper makes your country seem like it's, you know, engaging in a march towards progress. But if the majority of people in society don't have, you know, um, access to a basic standard of living, which means that they can't exercise, you know, basic democratic rights, then it doesn't really mean much other than words on paper. So I think that, you know, human rights organisations um, do try, but I think that we always need to centre... Um, access to resources in all of these discussions because otherwise it's all mm. a bit um, meaningless. For sure, and that was definitely something that George was bringing up before, the, the, the loss of those focuses on, on those really core rights. And, and I mean, when we think about the stats of unemployment rates and the number of queer people in particular, trans people and especially trans people of colour living below the poverty line, not being able to have access to work or healthcare and we think about in America especially where access to medical care is, is so limited and mental health care is so limited it's, it's really really problematic looking specifically at Australia do you think that the current system we have in Australia could allow us to achieve equal rights for queer people or do you think there needs to be a more radical an even more radical shift in order to enable um, trans rights to, to be achieved um I guess it depends on what system you're talking about and whose rights you're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Um, so, I mean, as a lawyer, I, you know, I'm always sort of, you know, focused on the, the legal frameworks that we have. And I suppose the first things that spring to mind for me, I think organisations like the Human Rights Commission and the Victorian counterpart, the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, um, they have... Um, the mandate to accept complaints about breaches of um, human rights, I suppose, um, in terms of, so they're called uh, protected attributes that we have in areas of public life and people can take complaints to those organisations if they think that either businesses or government departments have breached um, their rights by discriminating against them. Um, I think that it's, you know, a, a neat idea and I think for the people that can access those legal protections, it does have some limited value. Um, the outcome for people is generally financial compensation. So something bad happens to you, you get discriminated against, generally speaking, you get um, a small financial settlement. And for, you know, individual trans or gender diverse people, that can have an important function of providing, you know, much needed resources to be able to, you know, put food on the table, um, perhaps save for surgery, things like that. I think that that's useful and important for people. But um, I think that because these organisations are inherently 
individualistic in that, you know, generally speaking, it requires people to individually decide as an individual that they've had their rights um, infringed upon and that as an individual they're going to go to court about it. Um, that's never going to help the the majority of people because the majority of people aren't going to go to court um, when their individual rights have been um, infringed upon because um, most people, you know, don't have equal access to finances to do that. Most people probably feel like it's hard enough um, just getting through the day, let alone starting a lengthy court process. So I think that legal protections are often quite limited to people in this country that um, feel entitled and have the resources to um, access them and engage with them. So I guess in that sense, I don't think that those systems are ever going to be able to provide um, equality for trans and gender diverse people. Having said that, I think that, you know, things like the Equal Opportunity Act are important social marker of what is and what isn't acceptable. So I'm certainly not suggesting that they should be stripped away. Um, I just think that we need to accept that um, for most people, these are very remote institutions that they're very unlikely to have much interaction with. We need to be thinking about other ways um, to bring you know, those protections into everyday life, whether that's local councils, you know, actively trying to um, consider how, you know, human rights protections can be manifested in their own environments, you know, organisations taking active steps to promote these things as opposed to waiting for, you know, this um, theoretical individual complainant to to come to them to say you've breached my rights in some ways and you need to do things differently. Yeah, so what what I'm hearing from you is, is, and I guess this again feeds into what we were discussing earlier in the show, is that there seems to be within this neoliberal, you know, capitalist environment that we're in, it's very, it's on the onus of the individual to access their rights and we're not taking a community-based systemic focus on this. And in reality, it's almost like who has the right to access their rights? And for many trans and gender diverse people, they don't have the right to access their rights. And then when we start bringing in other intersections into that, it gets it gets harder and harder and harder. And feeding off that and thinking about more marginalised groups and their fight for access to rights, what part do you think the trans rights and queer rights movement has in dismantling this sort of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy? Um, well, I mean, I think the most useful thing that we can all do is interrogate our place in it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that it's, I mean, I find myself, you know, getting put in the difficult situation of often being, you know, viewed as a representative of trans and gender diverse people in some way. And, you know, as a white person who's employed and, you know, has stable accommodation and, you know, can go on holiday and things like that, like I'm actually quite an unusual trans and gender diverse person in Australia today. So um, I think it's, difficult um it's a difficult space to operate in um it's difficult to advocate for a community that you're not necessarily particularly representative of so i guess for somebody like myself um i see my job is as um i suppose finding opportunities for people that aren't me to speak and talk about their experiences and to give them opportunities to have a seat at the table um but i think that when 
um, you know, government and things like that want to have discussions about trans and gender diverse rights, there's always going to be um, a situation where uh, the most kind of normative people end up having a seat at the table because they're the most likely people that the government will find um, easy to interact with because they're, you know, able to deal with committee meetings and sitting quietly when you're not when it's not your turn to speak and then speaking without getting angry you know like the whole way that we do um, discussion consultation and drafting you know things like legislation in this country is, is just so um, specific culturally um, and I think that if we don't interrogate that um, then we're setting up barriers for people that we don't even see and we just think, oh, there's only a certain kind of person that we end up speaking to and we're not really sure why, but actually... Um, it's it's the process that creates the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it it absolutely is beholden upon, like you said, trans and gender diverse people like yourself, like myself, who are able, who are who benefit from the system to basically act as allies to our fellow gender diverse and trans, you know, mates out there, <laughs> I suppose, uh, to give them give, help help be a platform basically pass that microphone on and not be the ones I say as I'm sitting in front of a microphone <laughs> and, yeah, that's and, not, right. and not and not and not be the ones taking up all the oxygen all the time I think that's a really really great place to end the interview I'm afraid Sam because we are um moving on to our next interview but that was I could talk about that all day to be honest um really interesting insights there thank you so much for taking the time to call in and if anyone wants to follow you on social media where can they find you uh, yes, I'm on Twitter um, at Sam SKLS, uh, or yeah, you can find the LGBTI Legal Service on Facebook. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sam, and have a lovely day. See ya. Music is the mid-a-gen. These beats got us out of control. Things around like you never get old. Breaking and popping on my boys, five locking. Got us feeling like we out of this world. Eat your mask, get down, and battle like a going on the go. Go more in a You got neck brace, no problem. You got two left feet, can't catch that beat. Take a deep breath, cause I got this yo.
baby, free your mind. If you're driven for the vision, then I'm down to ride. Where the beat drop, damn me, you'll find. And we still in the city, but the crowd gon' wild. Yeah, keep it banging through the system. Light it up, start it up like an engine. Bars on lock, put the music freedom. And the booty drum go for up a bum bum. Hey, okay, yeah, come. I give you some, some, some of this, make it jump. Do it just to do it, and I do it till it's done. Connect with the sound, people over income. That's team, that's why I get the picture. That's us, that's my bitch, you with us. Just be here, the queen is in the building. You better come correct if you're knocking at the kingdom. Yeah, okay, is it with us? Yeah, okay, is it with us? Just be here, the queen is in the building. You better come correct if you're knocking at the kingdom. Listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and that track you just heard is Baker Boy's new tune featuring Jess B, two massive favourites here at Tuesday Breakfast, and it's called Medigin, which means medicine. Hope you enjoyed that one. It was such a good song. <laughs> it was great. So it's kind of like because I guess I was trying to p- pick more protesty kind of music, but then this one came up, and it's it's more about it's more about positivity and freedom. Mm. Baker Boy said in an interview, and it's kind of nice to also highlight that mm. that kind of. Um, I guess it's still political in music. And there's, I think that the importance about activism, it's really important to remember that there needs to be positivity and joy and fun and laughter and love in activism. Yeah. It's, it's an important part of yeah. what we do. Yeah, definitely. If you, if you like that tune, check out the video clip. It's, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. All right, so we'll keep moving on with today's Human Rights Day special. We have in the studio with us regular Tuesday breakfast <laughs> guest, Dr. Nero Kandasami, who's a Tamil Studies researcher at the University of Melbourne. And there's so many things we can talk about today. <laughs> thank you, firstly, for being here so early in the morning. That's okay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I guess we wanted to focus on the experiences of Tamil people, the effectiveness of human rights, uh, but maybe quickly you could give us a quick reminder about your research areas because it's, it's pr- pretty broad. Yeah, so my disciplinary background um, is history and sociology, but I primarily focus on the experiences of marginalised groups, uh, mainly looking at the resettlement experiences of Tamils who fled Sri Lanka civil war. I look at women with disability in Sri Lanka during the post-armed conflict period, um, especially women living in rural areas of Sri Lanka who face multiple uh, levels of discrimination due to their statuses, women, but also disabled. Um, And I also look at the delivery of welfare services and how governments and civil society organisations create self-advocacy programs. There's so much that we could unpack there in relation to the human rights regime. What, I guess, just as a broad opening point, how effective do you think human rights are in kind of upholding the rights of these various communities that you've mentioned and that your research involves? So I think if I can speak specifically about the persecution of Tamil people um, in Sri Lanka, I don't see human rights as as being effective uh, 
to to meet their needs. Um, you know, what we saw was during the Civil War, the Sri Lankan government, the United Nations and international governments um, really made no effort to address the ongoing persecution of Tamils in their homeland. So during the final stages of the Civil War, for example, what we saw was a silence from the international community, including the UN, um, that is tasked with maintaining peace and security. So the UN's failure to act on the genocide of Tamil civilians was, I would say, effectively supported by the international community, including superpowers such as the US that remained silent. Um, and it was a reflection of the Western powers' relationship with Sri Lanka as well. I think that's quite important when we talk about human rights in relation to the persecution of Tamils. The U.S., for instance, considered itself a strong ally of Sri Lanka um, and looked at mobilizing Sri Lanka as a Southeast Asian arm of NATO. It also gave $2 billion to train its military and so on. Um, in fact, you know, just days after the, the end of the Civil War, the U.N. General Secretary Ban Ki-moon visited Sri Lanka um, and, you know, he... <laughs> You know, he expressed his pleasure at the Rajapaksha regime's, and I quote, commitment to the promotion and protection of human rights. Wow. So this was in response to Rajapaksha vowing to undertake its own domestic investigations. I mean, how can we say human rights have been effective in the context of the persecution of Tamil people when the government that was responsible for human rights abuses runs its own investigations into human rights abuses? So, I mean, 10 years after the end of the conflict, end of the armed conflict in 2009, I would argue there's a persistent lack of genuine engagement with human rights issues relating to the Tamils in Sri Lanka. And I think that any sort of engagement with human rights in this context would require serious engagement um, from the UN, as well as the international community, to pressure the Sri Lankan government of the past and present to uphold its um, its international obligations. And, you know, for me, it's not enough for Sri Lanka to say that in this in this post armed conflict period of reconciliation that it's going to it's going to carry out reconciliation because reconciliation is not the same as justice mm. um, in my opinion so I mean I guess the question is what's at stake when we talk about human rights in the case of Tamils but not only Tamils but the other groups that I focus on and I find that it's it's survival it's a matter of life and death for these people yeah and I think that really speaks to those vested interests and upholding those power imbalances and those inequalities between states. And just like it's just uh, imperialism 2.0 under a different guise. Yeah, that silence and that quote from Ban Ki Moon, I think, is just really yeah. telling. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think just moving on to my next question, I kind of want to touch on this this issue of accountability, but also prevention. And we've been talking how you know we have we know you know various human rights abuses issues that are going on at the moment. And we don't see action, and sometimes we see, you know, this kind of approach to justice that happens years and years after the fact. You know, how do you see human rights around these issues of accountability and prevention? So in the case of Sri Lanka, um, you know, the accountability of the persecution of Tamils, again, does not work because the actions that are taken under this pretext of human rights by the government only go so far as sustaining control and power over these marginalised groups and appeasing the moral conscience of, of global superpowers. So I don't think, you know, we can talk about accountability in places like Sri Lanka where human rights is just seen as a term that's thrown around by government. Um, and I think, you know, in the case of Tamil refugees and asylum seekers in Australia, accountability and prevention um, of human rights abuses is altogether avoided 
by the Australian government. I think that you know any such accountability measures to the human rights of refugees by the Australian government will see its own government regimes fail on an epic scale. So I think when we talk about accountability um, and prevention, you know who who is actually making these decisions. And one thing, one thing I'd like to highlight is when we you know when we think about human rights is are these people that we're talking about on an equal footing? And I think this is where ideas of power come in to yeah. play. Yeah, absolutely. And this really, this is a thread uh, th- that's running throughout this show, this, this idea of access, you know, in, in Zoe's interview with Sam talking about access. Yeah. So to know that you, you as an individual can access, you can, you can go to a human rights body and say, this is what I'm experiencing. How do you know that unless you've gone and studied human rights at an elite university? And there's not information that we all have access to. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, so one of the research groups that I look at are women with disability in Sri Lanka. And, you know, you can talk about human rights all you want, but on the ground for these women, it's not, you know, she's, she's looking for justice. She's looking for ways to survive in an increasingly ethnic, polarised ethnic and religious society. So how do human rights discourses translate on the ground, I think, yeah. is also really important. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think we need to see to, you know, and I think I, I pose this question to you, but I understand that it's extremely complex, but what changes need to happen so that human rights or, or other frameworks can be used to actually give a platform to people in the global south and to various communities you know, related to gender, people with disabilities, etc. What other approaches are required? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. There's probably no straightforward answer yeah. to this. <laughs> um, I think to begin, what we can do is is challenge the universality of, of human rights frameworks um, so they can be made more effective um, if closer attention was paid to the realities in which those frameworks are being adopted. This means trying to understand the political, historical, cultural, social mm-hmm. context of a particular country. Um, and increasingly, this is also about the external forces that are orchestr- orchestrating the power structures uh, within that country that determine how human rights uh, is being adopted you know, at the level of, of the government. But I think what we should also have conversations about is, you know, if human rights is a framework, then, and states are obliged to uphold, you know, these frameworks as part of their international obligations, um, you know, we must not forget that these human rights should be embedded and built from our society from the ground up, right? So they should be visible in our everyday interactions with each other. They're not just, you know, legal frameworks um, or political rhetoric. They should be a part of our dialogue and interactions and conversations that we have every day with people. Mm. So they should be built into, you know, the fabric of our society. Mm. I think that's a really extremely, extremely important point. Again, linked to access, it's about the grassroots movements and the people speaking for themselves and highlighting their own rights. Um, oh, I just I was out of time, but I did want to comment briefly. Maybe at another time we'll get a chance to speak about this more, but because your research is involved with oral histories, and again, that's about critiquing the historical context and the political, social, cultural, all those factors that you mentioned. We won't have a chance to speak about that, but that, that, that is very much a part of breaking that down and looking at how are people experiencing these issues and actually understanding the lived experiences is a, is a huge part of actually getting away from that universality. Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you so much, <laughs> Dr. Nira Kandasamy. Um, maybe we'll have a chance in future weeks to have a bit more of a debrief about what's the, 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 the weeks following on from the election and 
everything that's going on in Sri Lanka, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Rob Mills, X Factor's Isaiah Firebrace and more for Carols at Como Park. South Yarra will come alive with song and good cheer at this much-loved Christmas event. Bring the friends and family and be sure to stay for the spectacular fireworks display. Carols at Como Park, Sunday 15th of December from 7.30pm. Visit the City of Stonington website for details. A 3CR supporter. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Up next, I'm very excited to talk to a Tuesday breakfast favourite and regular, Robin Oxley. Good morning, Robin. How are you? Great. How are you guys going? Good, thank you. I'm sorry, it's super early where you are at the moment, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's uh, quarter past five in the morning. Mm, that dedication to Tuesday breakfast. We're all so <laughs> grateful. Um, well, let's jump straight into it, Robin. So, as you know, today's theme is about um, Human Rights Day and what that means um, to different people and different communities. Um, so, maybe firstly we'll start about, you know, you personally as a person existing across different intersections. What does the term human rights mean to you or how do you relate to that? Uh, so, I guess for me personally, I look at human rights from a, a few different views. Um, as an Aboriginal person, I relate to human rights through resistance and self-determination. Uh, so we as First Nations people, you know, we must make the decisions that impact our lives. You know, for far too long, Western institutions have controlled our lives. You know, this is through movement, through um, where we, who, who we engage with, um, the social constructs of what it means to be Aboriginal. And I think, you know, even if we kind of look within the criminal justice system itself, the over-representation of Aboriginal people is increasing. So this legal system was never designed to include Aboriginal people. But from this side of human rights, I think it's imperative that we have self-determination, mm-hmm. that to live in a society of freedom, that is one that I can relate to in relation to human rights. So, you know, I want to, I want to feel free to be me, free to access services without racism, free to walk down the streets as an Aboriginal person, um, especially an Aboriginal queer woman, without judgment and without those social constructs of Aboriginality, um, of differencing and othering. You know, free from violence, um, this would include, you know, within the community and within the patriarchy and, and institutions that have benefited off the lives and history of Aboriginal people. So I guess the systems I'm talking about deny these human rights and they deny the voice of Aboriginal people within all aspects of decision-making processes. 
So I think similar to what Sam was saying, mm-hmm. you know, the seat at the table was taken up by white cis males and, and two white cis females. So it would be great to, you know, have a seat at the table and, and make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, that theme has come up a lot this this whole day about the access to having a seat at the table um, and the, you know, the fear of human rights is available, but how do people relate to it? Um, and I guess, you know, specifically, as, as you brought up um, the topic of, of incarceration of Aboriginal people and the continued removal of Aboriginal kids from their families, the fight to save the Jabbarung trees and, you know, countless other things that are happening at the moment, is it actually... Um, possible to think uh, about achieving equal human rights? Or is that is it an outdated way of thinking that we have at the moment? Or do you think there's scope to improve? Or just get rid of the concept completely and start fresh? Um, I think like the bones are there. I think the structure's there. I just think um, in Australia specifically, you know, until we have a truth-telling commission that stems from a peace treaty, uh, where, where the wrongdoings are recognised and acknowledged by the government, we'll just continue this cycle of over-representation. I'm talking about the criminal justice system, specifically. Mm-hmm. So to remove the systemic racism that's embedded within the, legal, um, the Western legal system will take more than just the government stopping the consistent intervention on our lives. So it takes a whole culture shift and sharing of the healing that needs to happen. Um, so it's more tangible than the, the tokenism that occurs every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the bones are there, but... Um, like any institution within Australia, it is run by the same white male um, dominant that they're not always right. So um, I think when we look at grassroots activism and and resistance, I think that those voices need to be heard and they actually, they're the ones that need to see at the table. Yeah, and I mentioned before to listeners, but in case um, listeners just tuned in, Robin is actually the assistant lecturer, is that right, Mm -hmm. at the Monash Criminology Department. So, you know, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this. Do you think, you know, the very idea of prisons and incarceration, can they ever be understood in a human rights context? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think so at all. And I think the answer to this is just is prison abolition. You know, that's achievable, um, and that's that's an area that needs more attention and seriousness by the government. I think the issue is that prisons are a business. Uh, it makes you know, economic sense for their existence, and the, defi- the deficit of human lives is at the capitalists. And I think, um, you know, in regards to the human rights model, it doesn't fit. It is a system that is uh, that is racist. It is violent. Um, it controls the lives of people. And you know, when we have this human rights agenda or model, um, it can never be understood within that. Um, the, the main sentencing game in Victoria, like one of them is rehabilitation, but you know, we just saw the government pour a whole bunch of money in to the, um, the prisons, but you know, there was limited money that went into rehabilitation and reintegration. So how serious are they about this? Mm. So I don't think it doesn't fit within the human rights model at all. Yeah, it's sort of contrary, you know, putting people in prisons and locking them up seems contrary to the very idea of them having human rights. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I just, yeah, wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And the other thing that you wanted to talk about, um, which I think is very um, pertinent as well, is the hashtag save FE PLS uh, movement. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe you can just start by talking about what that movement is, firstly. Yeah, sure. So the um, Morrison government has just cut the funding to the Family Violence Legal Prevention Service, um, and I guess, you know, that, that is the one gateway where Aboriginal women have their voice 
when it comes to family violence. You know, we, um, it's, the, it's the one area that, you know, we get, we get to actually have our, have our voice, like have it heard within the legal system and, um, to cut the funding just absurd. So it's, um, makes you wonder, you know, what price Aboriginal women's lives are when it comes mm. to, to family violence. Um, so there's this, yeah, the hashtag saves FE. Um, PLS, yeah. PLS, yeah. But Enterate Braybrook has done amazing work within this area, and so has Marie Onis. And I think, um, you know, we keep need, we need to keep pushing for more funding, more funding, because um, it's not just a quick fix. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a systemic issue. Um, and I think, you know, Aboriginal women's lives are worth more than that. Yeah, and it also goes back to access as well. If Aboriginal yeah, women definitely. don't get to tell their stories, then what can we do? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and it's something ridiculous think, like two hundred twenty-five million dollars, which is nothing. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah, absolutely, it's nothing in the in the in the scheme of things of where all this money gets you know filtered through. Mm. But it, this is important work, though. It's not you know this is really important work, and um, you know we already live nine years less than um, non-Aboriginal women, so you know even to just kind of that funding and lower it even more like yeah it just doesn't make any sense yeah yeah absolutely and robin before we wrap up um i know you have a lot of interesting thoughts uh, on twitter so if people want to follow you what's your um handle good question <laughs> <laughs> um my handle is um at robin underscore oxley beautiful thank well, you so yeah. much for joining us this morning i know it's uh, very very early and i hope you get some sleep thank you, thank you. thanks so much for uh, yeah for the interview, it's great. Oh, Thank you. 3CR having a festive season craft auction fundraiser. Join us on Thursday, the 12th of December, for Radio Craft at 15 Smith Street, Fitzroy, right next door to the station. Doors open at 5:30 p.m. to have a look at the works, enjoy a drink at our donation bar, music and snacks. Live auction starts at 7 p.m. We're still seeking donations of crafts in any of its wonderful forms, so if you'd like to make a donation, you can drop it off at 3CR any weekday between 9am and 5pm or email radiocraft3cr at gmail.com for more information. So... You're listening to Choose a Breakfast on 3CR. We are almost out of time, but we're going to try and squeeze in a few more points because we love talking so much. <laughs> um, can't get rid of us. Uh, so I wanted to come back to the theme of today, so Human Rights Day. The theme is Youth Standing Up for Human Rights. And I wanted to talk a bit about the Youth Climate Summit that happened a couple of months ago. And, you know, we all know Greta and Greta's speech, and, and this is in no disrespect, disrespect to um, the work that she's doing, which is incredibly important. But I wanted to highlight a couple of points, and one of them is uh, um, about uh, a boy who's 17 years old, Nazratullah Elam, who was selected as one of uh, more than 500 young climate activists to take part in the summit, and he was denied a visa. He's from Afghanistan, mm. and this is this isn't the first time that uh, people from Afghanistan have been have been denied visas to attend events and conferences in the U.S. So it's 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 a it's a, I think a very telling example of that gatekeeping and that the U.S. is the you know the central state 
mm. that um, where these events are held at the UN, and that he had all these great ideas. His aim, his area of interest is tackling the issue of climate change in war-torn areas and less secure places. So the voice that he could have brought to the table that Greta can't bring and the understanding that he mm. could have shared, yeah. you know, that, that was completely silenced. Yeah. Once again, it's like it's not even just who has a right to access their rights, who has a right to talk about their yes. access to rights. Yeah. It's these layers of, of, of gatekeeping. Yes, and then it comes back to, you know, the liberalism universality, that being a male-dominated space, and it's now a space that the white feminists are very heavily invested in, mm. but we don't see this uh, intersectional understanding that is bringing together different um, experiences and identities and, and ensuring that everyone has that voice. It's still very much that liberal approach. Yeah. Absolutely. And before Greta, there were indigenous activists doing this for decades and mm. nobody listened. Yes. Um, and we love Greta, obviously, just to make it clear. In case Greta, <laughs> in case it's, not, it's not Greta's fault. She's being used as a, as a, as a, as a symbol in ways that she can't control. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess uh, the, and the other point around youth, you know, youth standing up for human rights is also the issue of history repeating itself. And mm. there was a post mm. that was circulating a lot at the time of, of, of the summit. But mm. uh, so many of you might already be familiar with this. But in, in 1992, there was a young girl, Seven Suzuki, who gave a speech very mm. similar to one that, that Greta has I gave a couple of months ago and so you know we I didn't know that until I saw those posts you know we just this, that it is very much this issue of lip service that people just get onto the world stage through the UN they say a couple of words we mm. clap and we wait for something to happen and then 10 years time we'll do the same thing all yeah. over again 20 years yeah. time or you know it just keeps it keeps going like that without that real change absolutely and we don't have time to talk about this but I think it's really <laughs> important to consider the youth standing up for human rights thing is why is it that we're putting the responsibility and the onus on the next yeah. generation? It's really the responsibility of our generation and the generations above us to be resolving this so that they don't have to do that work. Yes. Mm. It's not the job of young people to fix yeah. the problems that we made. I it's the job of us to resolve it for them. And I think that that actually really relates to the point that you mentioned at the start, the programs are around emotions and how, that, how much that feeds into how we think politically. Mm. Because people are so moved by a young person getting up that that's where that visibility comes yeah. into play because everyone's like wow you know that's yeah. so powerful that a young girl can get, get up and do yeah. that and they use the tools have to. yeah yeah absolutely yeah kids kids are always used for better or for worse as tools in everything when you think of in in every single angle of political discourse whoever's supporting whichever way it's always think of the kids but but really we we got to think broader than that because it's just it's just passing on the responsibility yeah. to the next generation yeah. and yeah like you said you know trying to pull at heartstrings which is important but we also need to try and think with our heads a little bit yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah that's a definitely a good point to end on <laughs> we have a lot of thoughts and we we might have to do a, to a part two next week i think we just have to because yep. we didn't get i got through half of the notes that I'd written down for yeah and it's our final live show next week True. so definitely tune in yeah we'll talk more about this uh, and yes. we will see you next week yes let's go out with um uh, at least I can play a tiny bit of this tune this is Mariam Hassan who we all know because um, she was featured in the West Sahara documentary at the mm. 3CR fundraiser mm -hmm. another amazing activist musician um, and let's play a bit of this track it's called Arabi El Arabe thank you so much for listening and today. after that we'll have Accent of Women with Giselle Hanna yes see, see you next week
バイバイ。